Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, this is Judaism, not 101. This is Judaism 101.9. This is Rabbi Michael Katz here with you. It is Wednesday afternoon and wonderful to be in your company on a beautiful, beautiful day here in Joburg. Um, great to be with you. Just gone 11 minutes past two um, on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Hope everybody had a wonderful Shavuot, wonderful Shavuot. It was um, something really, really special, I think, in the air. There was a very, very beautiful vibe of um, Kabbalah Satoru, receiving the Torah, of the feeling of togetherness, of community and unity, and all the wonderful things that come with a Chag, uh, like Shavuot. Of course, there's the mandatory cheesecakes and cheese blintzes and all the other things that uh, make Shavuot uh, what it is, make it delectable and delightful and all sorts of um, other additives that make it into something really, really special. We hope you learned a lot. We hope you gained a lot. Um, not in weight, of course, but we hope that you gained a lot of knowledge and uh, inspiration and togetherness and all the other beautiful things that a hug like Shavuot, like Shavuot, actually means and should be for each and every one of us. In these days that now follow Shavuot, and I think that I have told you here before, but just to repeat, you know, Shavuot is um, connected to um, Yom Kippur in a way, and it's connected to Rosh Hashanah, and it's connected to just about everything that comes afterwards, and that's pretty obvious. It is the time of the giving of the Torah. But Shavuot really is the beginning of a countdown or count-up to the uh, Yomim Norayim, to the special festivals that are coming up Tishrei time, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and so on. And, um, of course, the reason being that it was on Shavuot that we received the Torah. So the um, beginning of everything really happened on that day, which was the 6th, the 7th of the month of Sivan. Forty days later, Moshe was coming down the mountain with the first set of tablets and seeing that there were people who were worshipping the golden calf, he allowed the tablets to fall to the ground. They smashed. And uh, that was the 17th of Tammuz. For 40 days thereafter was a period of introspection, of uh, tshuva, of repentance, of uh, growth, of uh, all those kind of things that had to happen. And then he ascended um, on Rosh Chodesh Elul after 40 days. So there was 40 days um, until the worshipping of the golden calf. There was 40 days thereafter until Moshe went up to receive the second set or to actually produce them and make sure that they came down. And then he remained up there for 40 days and 40 nights and came back on Yom Kippur. Yes, second set of tablets were brought down on Yom Kippur. And so therefore we have a period of 40 days and then another 40 days and another 40 days between Shavuot and Yom Kippur, 120 days exactly from Shavuot to Yom Kippur, uh, which means only 110 to Rosh Hashanah. And being that a number of days have already passed since Shavuot, well, it's getting closer by the minute. And we often think about during this period of time in northern countries, in Israel and so on, we know that we are past uh, now uh, with Shavuot, we're kind of into the middle of the summer and we always have in northern countries these summer holidays, long days, um, long Shabbosim, long Shabbos, the Shabbos um, is very long. Here in the southern hemisphere, things seem to go 
a lot quicker. I mean, think about the days of Shavuot, where in uh, northern countries, you know, it can be uh, nine, ten o'clock until uh, Yom Tov came out. What a long, balmy uh, afternoon or day. Um, altogether, here in our environs, much, much quicker, much shorter. But there is an institution that happens in the Shabbos is actually from Pesach. Many do it just till Shavuot, but then from Shavuot until um, the Yomim Narayim, until Rosh Hashanah. There is a custom that people have and that uh, Jews around the world practice, and that is to learn on a Shabbat afternoon, being that there is supposedly that extra time. And yes, we in the Southern Hemisphere, it's the other way around, and therefore we have perhaps less time. But nonetheless, the custom to learn on a Saturday afternoon from Pirkei Avot, from the Ethics of Our Fathers. Ethics of Our Fathers is one of the tractates in the Talmud. It is a tractate for which there is no Gemara. It is just Mishnah, Mishnayot. And the Mishnayot of the Ethics of Our Fathers are famous. And they're probably or possibly some of the best-known Mishnayot because we study them on Many, many Shabbos afternoons. And the custom, of course, is that each Shabbos from Pesach to Shavuot, we learn one of those chapters, and there are six. There are always six Shabboses between Pesach and Shavuot. And then we have um, the possibility then to continue in many communities. We continue all the way through until the Yom Narayim, until Tishrei, um, with this learning. And then, of course, it will be one chapter that we'll learn, that we will uh, think about, and we will introspect on each Shabbat afternoon at Mincha time, following Mincha, um, Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, studying it throughout what is known in the Northern Hemisphere as the summer months, but here in the winter months, going through and studying a chapter, and as it gets towards the end, when we kind of run out of weeks, sometimes it's two chapters that are learnt on a particular Shabbos. And perhaps um, for uh, today's session, we're just going to take a look at what is Pirkei Avot, what is it about, and how does it actually guide us, and what are the some of the lessons that we learn right in the beginning. Maybe we will use Pirkei Avot um, when there is not a Yom Tov, a Chag, an event kind of coming up, um, in the immediate vicinity that we'll do a little bit from it um, in in these weeks and in these days in order to give a couple of extra insights and a couple of um, extra points on Judaism 101.9 um, for um, us to hopefully be able to take with us to live by and to integrate into our lives. The ethics of our fathers appear to have what? You know, in Torah, there is a, um, there are a number of different interpretations as to what an av actually is. Now, people would think that this is absolutely simple. We all know what an av is. An av is a father. It's not so difficult to understand that when we're talking about Pirkei Avot, the ethics of our fathers, um, we are talking about ethics, um, Pirkei, the word perik, by the way, actually means the chapters, the chapters of our fathers. We're talking about chapters, things that they taught. And um, we kind of think, oh, so fine. You know, we must be talking about the fathers of the Jewish people um, dating all the way back to our first father, who was our first father, Avram Avinu. So we must be quoting from Abram, from Isaac, from Jacob, and so on. And in fact, we see that we don't actually. We don't actually quote from them. Um, we do quote from a number of different uh, rabbis, scholars of the, the Talmudic area. 
uh, era. And we talk about um, the different rabbis in the Babylonian Talmud and um, uh, predating it and uh, right afterwards and so on um, who gave us ethics. They gave us ideas. They gave us um, specific things to think about, to contemplate. And, of course, the ethics of our fathers, as people well know, are kind of guides for life. They are um, symbolic um, and more than symbolic um, statements about certain things in life um, that have application to just about everybody. There is tremendous, tremendous wisdom. There is so much depth and so much knowledge and so much um, incredible insight that is given in the Pirkei Avot. Just if you do a superficial reading of it, you get a tremendous amount out of it. And if you start unpacking it and thinking, as we're supposed to do with anything that is written into the Mishnah, and any part of the Talmud that we cannot really take any word at face value. We've got to look into it. We've got to um, unpack it. We've got to think into it from its length, its breadth to the left and to the right and up and down and inside out. When we take a look at that in terms of Pirkei Avot, we suddenly understand that this is not really to do with an Av in terms of the fathers who said them as much as maybe it is a different usage of the word av, which is used throughout the Talmud, and av is a main principle, a main axiom. These are the axioms of our fathers. These are the axioms. These are the main principles, really, of how to live a good life and how to live, moreover, a Jewish life. Be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. And welcome back. Uh, yes, we are talking about Pirkei Avot, the ethics of our fathers, the chapters of our fathers, the main axioms, main principles by which we are meant to live that we study each afternoon between Pesach and Rosh Hashanah. And in fact, since we have been through one cycle of it between Pesach and Shavuot, we begin again in earnest from this coming Shabbat afternoon. On Shabbos afternoon, after Mincha, we study the first chapter of Pirkei Avot, of Ethics of Our Fathers. Now, our sages have devised it and designed it that we begin each chapter with the same quote. We're quoting the following introductory Mishnah. It says as follows. Which means, the people of Israel all have a share in the world to come. Shenemar, as it says, and it's a quote from Isaiah, it says, And your people shall all be righteous. Which means, they shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting. The work of my hands that I may be glorified. What does this actually mean, and why is this chosen as the introductory Mishnah to each time that we study Pirkei Avot, the ethics of our fathers? Perhaps it's worth just briefly recapping what it says. It says, All Israel have a share in the world to come. As it says, your people shall be righteous. They will inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. God is talking to the Jewish people and telling us something significant. But being that it's a Mishnah, this is actually something that we have to take as law. This is something that is of paramount importance. What is the relevance of such a statement to be made each time we learn, we study the ethics of our fathers? And there are so many different interpretations. I'm just going to try and provide you with a little bit of an insight. But, of course, the object of Torah 
study and thought is that one should go and investigate further and look and see and find all sorts of different interpretations that can make this even more valuable. But let's think about what are we talking about and who are we talking to? Well, we're talking about all Israel. In fact, this is a statement that is an absolute leveler. You know, very often when people get involved, I think, in Torah study, um, there is type of um, or kind of this perception of the fact that you sort of need to know a lot to even get involved. You're coming to study Mishnah and uh, you don't even know Alephbet. You're coming to study Talmud and you don't even know how to read uh, in the Chumash. That is all possible. But God tells us right at the outset here, and our sages wanted us to understand this, that everybody has a portion in the world to come. In other words, all our souls are equal. Nobody has more access to Torah than you. And uh, nobody has more access to Torah than me. We all have an equal access. We have equal standing in front of God. We are all absolutely equal. Society likes or sometimes adopts all sorts of hierarchies. There are those who are spiritual haves and those who are spiritual have-nots. There are those who are involved and who believe that um, they uh, occupy a more important place, perhaps, in uh, the hierarchy of Judaism. Torah comes along and says, hey, one second, no. Everybody's equal. Everybody's got the same soul and everybody's got the same connection. Everybody's got the same ability to comprehend and understand just like the next person. And we all have this... Um, incredible connection between ourselves and the Almighty, between ourselves and what we term Olam Haba. In other words, everybody has got things that need to be done on this earth, on this world, in this world, with our material lives that need to be and can be carried through into Olam Haba, into the world to come. We all can influence the heavenly spheres. We all have things that we're doing down here which are, seem to be um, of a mundane, physical, um, down-to-earth kind of a uh, an action or a kind of a basis. But there is a tremendous amount of influence that we can have in the heavenly spheres through the um, things that we do, whether they are mitzvot, whether they are Torah learning, whether they are um, things of kindness, whether they are good thoughts and so on. These things are all tremendously powerful. And why? Because we have a part of God within us, which we call our neshama, we call it our soul. That part of God is something of absolute preciousness. It is absolutely divine. It is absolutely miraculous. And each and every one possesses that portion, that part, that chalik, that segment of godliness within them. That power within your soul is there and it's equal to everybody. So don't be put off and don't say Torah learning is not for me. I have uh, this incapacity and I have that incapacity and I'm a little bit dumb and I'm a little bit uh, dyslexic and whatever the other excuses may be. No, one second. What you need here is to come to the fore as the person that God created with the soul that God gave you and that soul is incredibly powerful and incredibly beautiful and therefore you have what it takes to study Torah. You have what it takes to absorb these messages, to understand them. As we say, kulam tzadikim. In fact, we're all righteous. You know, the world likes to paint people into corners and say, that, you know, very often that everybody's bad. Well, let's borrow a term that's fake news. Um, not everybody's bad. On the contrary, Torah's view is everybody's good. 
Everybody has something perfect and good and beautiful um, within them. Sometimes through the failings of society and sometimes through the failings of um, our own weaknesses and so on, we end up making mistakes, doing the wrong thing, getting ourselves involved in uh, stuff that we shouldn't be involved in. But we're righteous. We're good. Everybody has the ability to connect on that level. And everybody has the ability to study, to improve, and to work on themselves. Um, we will be able to take the inheritance. Now, Aretz here not only refers to the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, but we're talking about Aretz. Aretz is Hashem's will. We all can inherit the will of God. We can inherit it. We can bring it into this world, and we can have um, godliness at our fingertips if we... Uh, and on our minds and our hearts and our souls if we strive for it, if we try for it, if we really work at it. And then we go into this image of Neitzer Matai that we are uh, the uh, branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be, may be glorified. What's the concept of a branch? Well, if you think about it, a branch has to be coupled with, it has to be connected to, to the tree, it has to be connected to its root and to its trunk. And when we're connected in that way, we can then branch out. And when we branch out, we can then bear fruit of our own. This is the image that is conjured up by um, this particular statement. And that is that each and every Jew needs to actually see him or herself not as an end result and not as a root beginning, but rather something in between. We are a bridge in a very, very long and beautiful and illustrious story. And we need to have this um, branch kind of effect of taking from our past and taking the things that we're rooted in and taking the things that we were schooled in and that we were educated in and that we were taught to and we know how to love and appreciate um, in our heritage, in our history, in our Torah and in our understanding. And we need to become parts of the branch um, in order to reach out, in order to provide the uh, uh, the end product, the fruit of our labors, which will ultimately be the uh, world that God wanted us to perfect, um, the coming of Mashiach and all the things um, that we know and we understand is actually part of the cycle um, that we're supposed to be part of producing um, along the way. We've all got that responsibility. Without the branches producing fruit, there is no future. Without us connecting to the past, um, there can be no connection, there can be no fruit, and we therefore need to see ourselves and work on ourselves in this way of being um, that branch. But there is a perhaps a deeper meaning here, and that is that each and every person is significant. Very often in a teaching, in a school, in a yeshiva environment, um, even um, there are certain labels that are placed up upon people and there are certain limitations that um, uh, we notice or put upon people where um, forever they are labeled as being um, unintelligent or being incapable or being unqualified or being um, one of the many labels that um, teachers, parents, society sometimes uh, plants on people's uh, demeanor and on their background and on them on, on them themselves, and, and that cripples them. Torah here is coming with a very very empowering statement and says, everybody, every single child, needs to be nurtured in the right way. And the same way as you're nurturing a plant, and each plant needs to be nurtured in a, in in the correct way. You know, there's some plants, if you water them too much, they will die. If you water them too little, they will die. There's some that need more. There's some that need less. There's some that need this kind of culturing and this kind of um, uh, care and attention, this kind of feeding, this kind of sunshine. There's not too much sunshine. 
everyone is different, every individual is different, and part of this Mishnah is the understanding of the fact that everybody, while we may be different, while we may have different needs and different um, likes and dislikes and different environments, Nevertheless, everybody's got this equality of purpose, and the equality of purpose is that each and every one of us has a soul, each and every one of us has a chelek lo'olam haba. We have a share in the world to come, and therefore our advent to Torah, our understanding of it, and our ability to study it is equal, equal from each and every one of us to each and every one of us, and therefore a beautiful way to open up. Ethic number one, perhaps, of the Pirkei Avot is... We're all equal, and we all have a share in God's world. We all have a share in Torah, and we therefore can now move into whatever it is of the other Mishnayot that we are studying and that we're looking at. Famously, the first chapter begins with a bit of a historical account of the handing down of the Torah. Now, fortuitously and correctly, yes, on Shavuot we spoke about Zman Matan Torah Tenu, the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, and uh, one of the uh, great um, events, or one of the great parts of this event that happened all those years ago at Mount Sinai was that we received everything. And particularly, we received what we know as the oral law. We received the Torah Sheba Alpeh, um, without which the Torah is not really meaningful at all. We have to have that. And we know that that was given over orally. But the Jewish people standing around, around Mount Sinai heard that all. They got that all. They grasped it all. In some way, it wasn't yet integrated. Moshe Rabbeinu had to go up the mountain and get it all explained in its great detail and great length by God. But it was meant to be originally all in a way of being in the oral tradition, oral law handed down, and an urgency of handing down from one generation to the next. And it's that that we start recording in the beginning of Pirkei Avot, because we say, Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai. Moses received the Torah from Sinai. Umesara li Yeshua. He handed it down, this oral tradition, he handed down to Joshua. The Yeshua li Zakanim, and Joshua handed it to the elders. Uzakanim li Navim. And the elders handed it to the prophets. Unavim misarual ancheknesis agdoila, and the prophets um, inherited it, or they handed it down in a way of um, tradition to the men of the great assembly. And then we say, Haim Amru Shloshadvarim, those men of the Great Assembly said three things. What are the three things that they said? They obviously said more than three things, but these are three main um, uh, principles that they wanted us to remember. And that was number one, Hevu Mesunim Badin, you should be exacting in judgment. Vemiru Tamidim Harbe, and raise up many students. Vasu Siagla Torah, and make a fence, a guardrail around the Torah. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Looking at the very first Mishnah, the very first statement made in Pirkei Avot and Ethics of Our Fathers, once we've got the introductory Mishnah, which we spoke about before, we come to the first Mishnah, which we mentioned just before the break, Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai. If we think about that statement, that Moses received the Torah from Sinai, that's actually what it says. We know that it actually means at Sinai, but why is it worded in such a way whereby we talk about Moshe receiving the Torah Misinai, from Sinai? We could have said he received it Al Sinai or B Sinai, at Sinai or on Sinai. Why does it say 
Mi Sinai, from Sinai. Um, we don't want to be accused here of splitting hairs, but th- there is something very significant in the way that Torah phrases things, and it uh, behoves us to actually unpack these things and look at them very, very carefully. And when we think about the fact that Moshe Kibel Torah Mi Sinai, in fact, it's not an accurate statement. Moses did not receive the Torah from Sinai. He received it from God on Sinai. Why don't we say that? What is this idea of receiving the Torah from Sinai? Well, if we take a look at and we think about Mount Sinai and what it represents, Mount Sinai was known to be a very humble mountain. Humble, its humility was spelled out by the fact that according to Torah teaching, we don't even know today which is Mount Sinai. Yes, while it may be that when you're uh, visiting the Sinai Peninsula, they take you to a place that they say is Mount Sinai, there are several mountains that could qualify. There are several mountains in the neighborhood that could be Mount Sinai. We don't actually know which one it is. And that is its exact personality. That's what Mount Sinai or Sinai itself represents. It is humble. It's not necessarily the biggest mountain. It's not necessarily the most beautiful. It's not the prettiest. It's not the highest. It's not a kind of peak where people are going to get together each year during the summer months and say, well, how are we going to climb Mount Sinai? It's not the tallest. It's not the best. It was a humble mountain. The humble mountain of Mount Sinai was chosen Dafka to be the place where God gave us the Torah because of its humility. Now, the person who ascended the mountain in order to actually bring down everything to us was Moshe. And Moshe is known in the Torah as being the most humble man who ever lived, the most humble man on earth. Now, very often humility is looked at as being a um, bit of a negative trait. If we think about humility, humbleness, we sometimes think of people who are quiet and sometimes people who want to take a back seat. And I think that this is very far from what humility actually is all about. If we think about the behavior of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses himself was the one person who really stood up to God. He was able to say to God, listen, God, um, there are certain things that um, I'm not going to allow. I'm not going to allow you just to willy-nilly destroy my people. I'm not going to allow you to um, uh, be, uh, be be horrible to them and to take them out and whatever when God perhaps had other thoughts about making Moshe great and taking out the Jewish people, so to speak. Moshe stood up to them. So his humbleness, his humility was not a weakness. On the contrary, it was his greatest strength. Humbleness and the ability to stand up for what is right are uh, very often the same part of the program rather than being opposites. It doesn't mean weakness. It rather means strength. And that's what this humility was truly all about. And now we say, Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai. Moses himself, who was the most humble man, received the Torah from this attitude of humility that Mount Sinai represented. Because... It was only in a humble way that Moshe was able to be the one who received the Torah on our behalf. Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai is perhaps the very first statement of the kind of attitude that we have to have when coming to study Torah. It is not only about the fact that every one of us counts and that every one of us is important and that everyone has a soul that can connect uh, to uh, heaven and can connect to Torah and godliness and our mitzvahs and so on. But each and every one of us needs to understand that in order to do that, there needs to be this overriding factor of humility represented by the two first things that are mentioned in this Mishnah, Moshe and Sinai. Humbleness, humility, that's really the forerunner to all our Torah study.
Be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. The next statement that is made in Pirkei Avot and the Ethics of Our Fathers is Umasara li Yeshua. He handed it to Joshua. Now you would think that this is a historical fact. Moshe gave it over to Joshua. Joshua was the next in line. Joshua was the person who took over the leadership of the Jewish people from Moshe Rabbeinu, from Moses. But perhaps if we're understanding it in terms of it being a teaching, a Mishnah, a law that we're supposed to follow, can't just be talking about a historical fact. Can't just be giving us the history of our ancestry and the way that uh, the uh, nation evolved, but rather perhaps we're talking about a Joshua-type personality. Who was Joshua? Who was Yeshua? And what was he? Well, we're told he was this great and incredible servant to Moshe Rabbeinu. He was Moshe's follower from beginning to end. He would not say anything or do anything that would fly in the face of his great teacher. Absolute respect, absolute humbleness and humility himself, but a total and absolute bonding to his master, to his teacher, to his Rav, to his Rebbe to his king, to the personage of Moshe Rabbeinu, this was Joshua. So one of the next character characteristics, traits that we need when coming to Torah, when coming to mitzvot, and when understanding all of these things is perhaps to have a little bit of that Joshua personality. We've got to be able to be respectful. We've got to be able to um, link in to everything that our masters, our teachers, our Moshe Rabbeinu, our God, our Torah has actually taught us. And when we have that, we've got the understanding of it being handed down to Joshua. And then Joshua handed it to the Zikanim. We know that there was a hierarchy of people called the elders. And yes, so a historical fact once again, but perhaps a suggestion that we're talking about Zikanim. Zakain is um, an old person, older people. Very often society dispenses with old people too soon. Um, we write them off. We say that uh, retirement age is uh, at 60. At 60, a person hasn't yet started to uh, do the things that they need to do and be involved in. It's very, very young, 60 years old. And at 60 years old, um, however, society sometimes has written people off way, way, way too early. So we talk about Zakanim. We need to respect the elders. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be backward-looking, but we need to remember that we have a history. We need to remember that there are people who came before us, and we need to remember that they had a lot to teach us. And part of our humility and part of our service mentality of Joshua is to respect and understand our history, our background, where we came from, and to understand what it can teach us. And then the Nevi'im, uh, the Zakanim gave it to the Nevi'im. The Zakanim, the elders, gave it to the prophets. What's a prophet? A prophet, perhaps, is young, sees the future. Nevua, prophecy, seeing into the future. We are only um, a people if we have a past and if we have a history and we adhere to it and we learn from its, um, from its triumphs and its mistakes. And if we have a vision for the future, the prophets had this vision, a vision for the future, and a vision for the future is something that is of paramount importance when it comes to thinking about Judaism, learning Torah, studying it, and our position in this world. And then we come to the Nevi'im, Masaru al-Anshei Knesset Sagdola, the Nevi'im, they gave it over to the men of the Great Assembly. Who were the men of the Great Assembly? Well, there was a time in Judaism when there was this concept of the men of the Great Assembly. It was the great leaders of the generation. 
They were the ones who canonized and put together certain things like our, uh, our Siddur and so on and the format and the formation of uh, formalized Judaism. We can't practice anything in a vacuum. It can't be haphazard. It can't be just whatever you want to do and when you want to do it and how you want to do it. We need to have a format. We need to have a, a grid within which we operate. That's what Judaism is all about. And so when we talk about all of these, they are stages perhaps in the progress of uh, Judaism and Jewish tradition being handed down from generation to generation. But they are also very important key factors in our growth in our understanding, in our lives, and in our way forward. We need to remember humility, number one. We need to remember servile mentality or a service mentality, number two. We need to remember that we have a past. We need to remember that we have a future. And we need to remember that it's all got to fit in with a formatted and formulated uh, Judaism, which we call our Torah and our mitzvot. I want to wish you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead. Look forward to being back with you same time, same place again next week on Judaism 101.9.